Well, we are uh, celebrating Thanksgiving this week. Wow. And I thought that uh, we'd have a trailer. You know what a trailer is, right? It's really a teaser, but they call it a trailer. I have never figured that out. (laughs) So there's good news and there's bad news for Thanksgiving the movie. What is Thanksgiving like for you? Traditionally, Thanksgiving meant being home with your family, feasting on dishes you only ever ate on the fourth Thursday in November. I remember mincemeat pie. Uh, All the food was homemade, even the desserts, especially the desserts. And we all ate way, way too much. Then we watched football games, cheering for every kickoff. But the big kickoff during Thanksgiving, the Thanksgiving holidays, was for Christmas. Because the official Christmas shopping season started right after Thanksgiving. So Thanksgiving was when you finally got serious about Christmas. In some families, you put up Christmas decorations on Friday. Anybody here do that? People still do that. It's amazing. Traditionalists. Um, But others hit the mall for the first day of Christmas shopping. Still others tried to beat the Christmas rush at the post office by mailing their Christmas cards the last weekend in November. Remember Christmas cards? (laughs) Remember... uh, how the, the mail, whole, the whole mail system just bogged down under the crush of Christmas cards and packages. And if you waited till a week before Christmas to mail something, it was way too late. Now, my mother mailed her Christmas cards in January, <laughs> put up decorations on Christmas Eve, and nobody, but nobody ever beat her to the mall for Christmas shopping. And I never exaggerate. But things have changed these days. Christmas lights on the house are permanently installed, and it's just a matter of turning them on. You know, it's passe to climb on ladders and risk your life putting up Christmas lights anymore. You hire a contractor, and he wires the place, and you just flip on the lights. Yeah. Bet you didn't know that. Christmas cards are fading fast and the postal service has become, and the post office has become the postal service. And the whole word postal has gotten a whole new meaning. Christmas shopping begins sometime in late summer or early fall. And Black Friday is now Black November. Going to the mall is out of style. You're aware of that, right? Now you just check their Amazon wish list and click on order that. It's so much nicer. But for most people, Thanksgiving still means home and family. And that for most people is both good news and bad news. We wouldn't be alive without families, but they are made up of broken people just like we are broken people. So for most of us, there are good things about our families, but there are also bad things. And for some of us, our families are tragically and sadly broken. Wouldn't it be wonderful 
if Thanksgiving wasn't just a holiday and instead was actually about giving thanks. So brokenness in families is nothing new. I would like to look at a family in the scriptures that was terribly broken and yet still came to be thankful. Hopefully this will help all of us be thankful at Thanksgiving, even when there is brokenness. So that all fit under Thanksgiving, the trailer. So a broken family destroys the possibility of Thanksgiving. In Genesis 50, verses 19 through 21, it says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this is Joseph, son of Jacob. He's the uh, next to the youngest brother in the family, and he's speaking with his brothers. So Joseph, son of Jacob, acknowledges that his brothers meant evil against him, yet he chooses to do good for them. Let's take a look at this. What evil had they done and where did it come from? Let's look at Jacob's family to see how Joseph Joseph was raised. First, Jacob's father, Joseph's grandfather, preferred Jacob's twin brother over Jacob. Ever seen that sibling rivalry thing? Ever seen the parents set that off by favoring one of the kids? Have you ever been that kid that your parents said, why can't you be like so-and-so? Have you ever been the kid that whom they, to whom they said, why can't you be like so-and-so? Yeah. <clears throat> so Jacob, at his mother's urging, deceived his father into giving him his brother Esau's inheritance. Now, that is a truly spectacular family fight. (laughs) Have you ever heard of anything like that, that your mother would encourage you to steal your brother's inheritance? Wow. Esau is enraged by Jacob's lying and stealing. No kidding. (laughs) So he plans to kill Jacob. Maybe a little overreaction, but still. Again, at his mother's urging, Jacob flees to his uncle Laban in another land. You can read the whole sad story in Genesis 25 through 28. It's really a terrible mess. Probably most of you grew up in a better family than this. Then Jacob falls for his uncle's daughter, Rachel. Jacob asks Laban if he can marry her in exchange for seven years of labor. Laban gives Jacob his own medicine by tricking Jacob into marrying the other daughter, Le- Leah. You know, and this was the time when they were serious about wedding veils. So, <laughs> yeah, this was a serious veil. So he didn't realize it until the next morning that it was the wrong daughter. I guess Jacob's family was all all into this deceiving thing. <clears throat> so his uncle then says, okay, you can marry Rachel too for another seven years of labor or a total of 14 years. 
The sisters compete for Jacob's attention, each by giving him their maids for wives. Is <laughs> Has it ever occurred to you to do that kind of thing? I mean, this is crazy, right? The sisters compete. Yeah. Jacob ends up with four wives, uh, 12 sons, and who knows how many daughters struggling against each other. Some have said that Jacob's new name, Israel, means struggles with God. Well, that may be so, but it certainly seems like struggles with family to me. Needless to say, this polygamous marriage is not off to a good start. There are a number of other tragic family conflicts, but in the interest of time, I'll skip over that to get to the specifics concerning Jacob. But you're welcome to go back and read the whole sad story. The Bible is really honest about what people's flaws are. So Joseph came from as bad a family situation as I've heard of. What early events shaped him? In Genesis 37.2, it says, These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zippah, his father's wives. That's the two maids that uh, got married into the family. You know, there was never any... um, Indication in the scriptures that they were consulted about whether or not they would marry into this. They might have preferred to remain as maids. Anyway, so then the verse finishes, and Joseph brought a bad report to their father. Now, Joseph has grown up in a family with a tradition of giving bad reports. So he learns early to give bad reports on his brother's. Now, that's kind of traditional in families that one child tells on the other. Probably, as you were growing up, you learned pretty quickly that that was not well received by the child you were telling on. And and uh, it would have been certainly would have been better if Joseph had thought of a better way of handling this rather than giving a bad report on his brother. His brothers responded with hatred, flat out hatred. The bad reports might be true, but they rarely make for good relationships. They rarely do. So then in Genesis 37, verse 5, it said, Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now you might remember that Joseph actually had two different dreams, and they had all involved him being exalted over everybody else in the family, and they're all supposed to bow down to him. If you ever have a dream like that, why don't you not share that with the rest of your family? (laughs) Just think about that for a good long while before you do that. Perhaps these dreams were from God. I think they probably were. But bragging to family members about how you are better than them is never good. In a family as dysfunctional as this one, it had very bad effects. So in Genesis 37, 19 and 20, the brothers say, they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. 
Now, as it turns out, his brothers being uh, uh, good with money decided to sell him to slave traders instead of killing him. But all in all, uh, they were not happy with him, and uh, they didn't do that out of mercy. So they sold him to slave traders in Egypt. Then they led their fathers to believe that wild animals had attacked him. Now, I've often thought that his brothers acted like wild animals, so this wasn't entirely a lie. Now we come to the turning point, right? <laughs> this is this is where you really need the guy in the white hat to come right in. And why do I say that? Joseph may be at the lowest point in his life. He's been sold into Egypt as a slave. There's no going back home. Home has been miserable for him. He was the favored child of his father. And yet, how did that work out? Yeah, really, really bad. Anybody here, here ever have their family sell them into slavery? <laughs> Maybe you had an older brother or sister that threatened to sell you into slavery. At the lowest point in his life, Joseph becomes grateful. He becomes thankful. And that makes all the difference. Actually, the next time Joseph is mentioned in Genesis is in chapter 39. He's in slavery or in prison in Egypt, but he seems different. We are not told just what Joseph thought or how his thinking changed along the way. But I wonder if being slowed into slavery is what caused him to repent and to begin seeking God's glory rather than his own. I think there might be two reasons about this. One is as you look at the description of his behavior, we don't hear about any more bad reports or boasting on his part. I think he learned that that was not the best way to win friends and influence people. And Genesis 39 has a repeated phrase in verses 2 and verse 21. In those two verses, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. This phrase is not repeated anywhere else in Genesis except in verse 2 and verse 21. It did not, it was not said of Joseph earlier when he was just favored by his father. And what I think they're talking about is not whether or not God is, is really present everywhere. He's been present everywhere all along. It's that Joseph started recognizing the presence of God with him. And that really made a big change. Before Genesis 39, Joseph is favored above his brothers by his father, but his behavior is more that of an irritating little snot. You know what an irritating little snot is? (laughs) Yeah, we've all met one of those. And he's qualified. He's treated worse than he deserves by his brothers, but Joseph is not completely blameless. Starting in Genesis 39, Joseph has grown up. His behavior is marked by maturity, competence, and grace. It's a big, big difference. What happens next? Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's household and is a picture of what Paul says in the New Testament about how slaves ought to act. 
And of course, the New Testament hasn't been written yet, but somehow Joseph knew this was the way a slave should act. Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Joseph does his work so well that Potiphar makes him his overseer and trusts him completely. Um, and I've, uh, I've not exactly been in Joseph's situation, but I have had another number of jobs, a number of responsibilities. And one of the things that I've found that really works is being a good servant. And it's really tough to find people that will choose to do a good job. And if you choose to do that, lo and behold, uh, things work out much better. So Joseph chose to be a good servant in that situation to the extent that Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's personal guard, makes him his overseer and trusts him completely. Well, that's nice. So what then? In uh, Genesis 39.10, it says, speaking of Potiphar's wife, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. And if you remember the story, Potiphar's wife tried to flat out seduce Joseph. I'm not sure what more Joseph could have done in the situation. Um, I, I can just imagine his struggle as he as he thinks about that situation and and what happened and uh, and how uh, how he could have responded better. So Potiphar's wife tries her best to seduce him and finally accuses him of attempted rape. The great strange thing about this passage is Joseph is not executed. Instead, Potiphar puts him in a prison. Now, we read in a chapter a little bit later, part of the duties of the captain of the king's guard is to run the prison. So actually, Potiphar is still keeping him on his staff, but he's putting him in the prison. So I have an idea that Potiphar is not totally persuaded by what he hears. Um, But in any case, he he does throw him in prison, and uh, um, and his previous good behavior earned him jail rather than execution. It's also interesting that Potiphar probably ran that prison. Now, he probably did have a, a, a fellow that, that was the immediate supervisor in the prison, and that's who Joseph worked for. Amazingly, Joseph again rises to the top in the prison. This really makes the point that Joseph has changed. In Genesis uh, 39, 21, and 23, it says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because Joseph was with him. 
Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, how many of you who get thrown in the county lockup are your first thought is, what can I do to improve this place? <laughs> this is amazing. This, this, guy, this is a changed man from what he was before. It's dramatic. Joseph gets kicked down to the bottom pit of life, but is not embittered. Instead, he embraces all the work he serves and thus rises to the top. One of the key things that uh, that we see in the passage uh, that I talked about in the beginning, the first one I read in Genesis 50, is that Joseph knows that he is not in the place of God, that God is in charge. And he is in, though he's trapped in this situation, his confidence is that God is going to make things work for good. That's the lesson that he has learned. So in Genesis 40, the Lord tests Joseph yet again. Wouldn't you think the guy's been tested enough? Two officers of the king of Egypt, his cupbearer and his baker, are put in prison with Joseph. Joseph serves them and befriends them. They are troubled by dreams, and Joseph interprets them with this result. And this is Genesis 40, verses 23, 23. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored his chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted for them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Um, You know, Joseph interpreted these guys' dreams, and his one request of the chief cupbearer was that when he got out, the cupbearer would remember him. But he didn't. He forgot him. (laughs) I don't know. If it was me, I'd probably be kicking the walls or something. (laughs) I'd be really torqued. It'd be really tough to, it's tough to keep doing a good job. This test here reveals whether Joseph will trust God or men. It wasn't wrong to ask the cupbearer to remember Joseph to Pharaoh, but it would be wrong to put his hope in men rather than God. If Joseph's hope was in men, being forgotten would have dashed his hopes. If his hope is in God, he will wait patiently on God's timing. So finally, in Genesis 41, Joseph is ready. He's been faithful in the little things. Now he will be trusted with really big things. He interprets Pharaoh's dream and is appointed governor of Egypt because he knows how to deal with the coming famine. So... um, Pharaoh's having these dreams in chapter 41. They are very disturbing to him. The cupbearer at that point remembers Joseph interpreting his dream and says, oh my goodness, I've been bad. You know, I forgot this guy did and told me and you ought to get to, you ought to have Joseph come. And what's interesting is that the, uh, it mentions the captain of the guard in that passage as well. And I wonder if Potiphar wasn't there 
and was just really happy that Joseph finally got out. It's, it's interesting how that, that all worked out. So Joseph is taken out of prison. They take a little time to clean him up. <laughs> it actually mentions that, shaves, brush clothes, clean him up. Take him to Pharaoh, and he interprets Pharaoh's dream and is appointed a governor of Egypt because he knows how to deal with the coming famine. Um, I wonder how Pharaoh knew that Joseph would be able to handle that. Do you think he heard maybe from Potiphar what a great job he did with his house? You heard maybe that he heard what a great job he did with the prison? Maybe he could do a good job with Egypt too. Who knows? Okay, if Genesis was about the rise of Joseph to the great power and to great power and wealth, the book would end here with chapter 41. Because this really is the high point. Uh, the, the, the rest of the book is about other things. So why does the book go beyond that? It's because Genesis is not about Joseph. It's about God redeeming his creation. Genesis must continue because Joseph's family is not redeemed. And I think Joseph would have understood this because when he's confronted later with these issues with his families, one of the things he says is, I am not God. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's a lesson that we all really need to learn, that we go into situations thinking that that somehow the universe and creation ought to be subject to my will. You would have thought we would have learned that that ain't true when we were kids. So a broken family, the third point, a broken family healed by thanksgiving. So now the famine hits, and Joseph's family is forced to seek food in Egypt. His brothers have no idea that he is alive, much less that he is governor of Egypt. So his brothers have to buy food from the little snot they sold into slavery. Whoa. Talk about an unexpected turn of events. I mean, this is the part of the movie where you say, I'm not watching this anymore. This stuff never happens in real life. <laughs> yeah, but God was involved. Again, Genesis doesn't tell us what Joseph is thinking. But this is what I think. I think that Joseph knows that he has really changed since he was a kid and accepted his part of the blame for what happened back then. Now, he did not deserve to be sold into slavery, but he sure didn't act in a gracious way towards his family. He may not have deserved to be sold into slavery, but his bragging and his bad reports were still wrong but it seems he was not expecting his brothers to come to Egypt and doesn't have a plan for dealing with them. In any case, I think when, when Joseph sees his brothers and recognizes them, it's like he's, he's flabbergasted in trying to figure out what to do. Uh, these are the guys that sold him into slavery. Certainly they deserve some kind of punishment, right? And and so he's he's um, he probably hasn't thought about them in quite a while. 
I mean, he's, he's had a big, he's governor of all of Egypt. He's tasked with helping Egypt get, uh, survive seven years of famine. Um, this is a, he, like I said, he probably hadn't even thought of him. Now that they're right in front of him, I think his first thought is to be concerned for Benjamin, that he may be getting the same kind of grief that Joseph got. So, Joseph tests his brothers by jailing them, and he lets them out after three days, and he he grills them to find out all that's going on. And then he decides um, he's going to keep Simon, and he's going to let him go. First he told him he was only going to let one of them go. And then finally he changes his mind and says, well, I'll keep Simon in, in jail here. And you guys can can go back. Or Simeon. Uh, and he sends him back, but secretly hides their payment back in with the grain and sending him home. So they find that in there on their way home. And, uh, and they're kind of panicked about it. They don't know what to do it. They're, they're thinking that they're going to be accused of something bad. And he also tells them they have to come back with Gen- Benjamin the next time or he will not sell them any grain. So they go back and they tell Jacob. And Jacob says, no way, you're not taking Benjamin. Already lost one son. I'm not losing another one. Um, yeah. So they, that lasts until they run out of food again. And then Jacob says, you got to go back, get more food. They say, we can't go back without Benjamin. So Jacob finally has to give in. They go back taking Benjamin and Joseph tests how they will respond to him keeping Benjamin. Joseph then sees that they have trained dramatically. These brothers that sold Joseph into slavery they offer to stay themselves as slaves just to let Benjamin go. It's a picture of, of them being changed so that uh, uh, that they have learned what they did was wrong and, and, and now that um, they need to lay their lives down for each other. And it's, uh, it's on this second trip back where Joseph sees how dramatically they have changed. And in Genesis 45, verse 5, he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve you. Let me tell you, when he reveals himself, in Genesis 45, Joseph sees that Benjamin is safe, so he no longer leads to cloak his identity. He reveals himself to his brothers, and Joseph can forgive because he sees God's purpose in it. The brothers are scared spitless when he reveals himself, as well they should be, right? But he has seen that before they even knew, they were willing to lay their lives down for their brother. So in Genesis 45, verse 24, it says, He sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. Okay, so they've changed, but not that much. And um, Joseph remains concerned about his brothers and their quarrels. So as we look at this section of Genesis, it seems like the story has kind of gotten lost in the bushes. 
There's all these meetings. There's all this travel back and forth. And I thought about that. And it, to some extent, it seems pointless. But one of the things I've noticed about Genesis is that there is nothing in this book that is actually pointless. And, and as I thought about it, I realized what was going on here. Okay, forgiving somebody is something that you can just do in your heart in a moment. And there can be a little more extensive forgiveness where they acknowledge their sin and they ask you to forgive them and then you can forgive them or, or not, whatever. <clears throat> but restoring a relationship usually takes a lot more work, especially if it has been, if there's been real wrong done. And there has been real wrong done. And so Joseph is concerned with his brothers and their quarrels. And he's working at trying to mend these family relationships. When there's been as much deception as there's been in this case, it's difficult to find out the truth. I think this is why Joseph repeatedly examines his brother before revealing himself to him. Obviously, if he just came out and said, well, you know, I'm Joseph. He sold into slavery. They're going to go, sorry, 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 you know. So he's got to find out the truth about him before he reveals that. <clears throat> so he sends them back, and on their, their third trip back, they bring uh, Jacob and all of his children and all of his household and everything back to Egypt, and they're given the land of Goshen to live in, and this is how Israel comes to be in Egypt. And finally... Um, finally, Jacob dies. And it's really interesting, the brother's reaction to, to the father's death. And they're right back where they were before. They're afraid that Jacob is going gonna, is gonna to punish him. Excuse me, Joseph is going to punish him. And why is that? Well, I don't know, but I think it's maybe what they would have done, or at least what they would have done at one time. So in Genesis 50, verse 15 through 20, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brother and their, and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of the God of your father. And it's really interesting how the verse ends. The passage ends there in, in verse um, 17. Joseph wept when he, they spoke to him. Why would Joseph weep about that? It shows just how far these guys have to go. And he's done so much. He's worked so hard to rebuild the relationship. And they haven't got it yet. Why does Joseph weep here? I believe it's because his brothers are still lying. There's no evidence that I could find that Joseph commanded, Je that Jacob commanded Joseph to forgive his brothers. So it seems to be another lie. After all that Joseph has already forgiven them for, it must have been tempting to be angry with them and to punish them. Or he could have feared them and sent them away. Instead, he chooses sadness and weeps. 
Personally, I think this is the best response when others wrong us and we are tempted to anger or to fear. Choose sadness and mourn for the sin. So and then the in, in Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? And it's a rhetorical question. He's saying, what are you doing, guys? I am not God. As for you, you meant evil against me. Joseph does not sugarcoat this at all. He says, you did indeed mean evil against me. But God meant it for good to bring it about that so many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So as many commentators have pointed out, this story of Joseph foreshadows the gospel. God's intention with us is good, very good. He's promised that though bad things can happen to us, God will work them together for good. God has said that suffering is part of this life. But that's, but it's necessary to refine our character. We actually deserve evil because of our rebellion. Ending our rebellion and submitting ourselves to God means trusting him that our suffering will result in good. If we are being granted good rather than the evil we deserve, how could we not forgive others and give them good rather than evil? The first step is forgiving what has been done to you and also asking forgiveness for what you have done to them. But reconciliation with others takes more. It often involves many meetings. Just as the first step of faith in Christ Jesus justifies us, we will take quite a few more steps of faith on the path to sanctification. I'm sure Joseph actually had no plan to heal his family of all the wounds they had inflicted on him and on each other. But God normally has larger goals than we have. Joseph's family family conflicts were resolved in God's timing. And so can our family conflicts also be healed. So this is the application I would leave you, lead, leave you with. Use this Thanksgiving holiday to build a better family. It's really not about Christmas presents. It's really not about turkey. It's really not about putting on a few extra pounds. Use this Thanksgiving holiday to build a better family. If there are issues that are going on in, in, in your family, number one, forgive all concerned in your heart before God. Just get alone with God. Name all the offenses and just tell God you forgive them for that. Number two, be a servant, winning hearing by your good works and your good deeds. All that stuff that nobody in the family wants to do and mom has to track somebody down to make them do it. <laughs> in my family growing up, we all knew mom was when mom was going to be looking for somebody. We found somewhere else to be. I remember... When I became a Christian, that was in high school, and I decided, all right, 
It's not right for me to be hiding when mom is looking for somebody to do something. But it was a little crazy because she would just grab you at all times in the day and it was just, life was crazy enough. So what I decided to do was I just picked some chores that I would make mine and I just always did them. And she looked at me one day and said, what happened to you? Why are you doing this? And then, and so what, what happened then is my brothers and sisters actually asked me why I was doing it as well. And I told them this thing about, well, you know, it's a little crazy when mom is jerking you to do these chores all the time and you can't ever get anything done and it's terrible. And I said, I just do these. And, and, uh, and then they started noticing that mom wasn't calling on me anymore and they complained about that. And then mom said, well, it's because he does these things already. You know what? Every one of them went and picked out a set of chores for themselves. (laughs) That was wonderful. Anyway, be a servant when a hearing by your good works and good and good deeds and good words. Patiently wait for God's timing. It may not be the first thing you want to do is say something to the people that you've got an issue with. You need to wait for God's timing. And then anytime an available step becomes towards reconciliation, why don't you take that step? Just look for opportunities to, to say something or to do something to, to win uh, a hearing with those people that you need to talk to. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before you. And Father, we know that that you mean things for good in our lives, that you mean for us to be conformed to your image, that you mean for for us uh, to experience joy and peace. Father, help us to keep that in, firmly in mind. Help us to um, uh, to not be trying to punish the people around us that have wronged us, but rather, Father, help us to uh, to do what's really good. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.